Future Self Podcast, episode 36. We need a moment where no one's quite sure who's going to be in charge for the next round of redistricting, because then both sides have an incentive to come together and bury this weapon. It's basically like the ring from the War of the Rings. It's too powerful. Can't trust anybody with it. You got to come together and just throw it in the volcano. This is the Future Self Podcast. He's your host, Robert Ingalls. Welcome to episode 36 of the Future Self Podcast, your resource for knowledge, insight, and inspiration to get you from where you are in life to where you want to be. You know, I should totally start a podcast. If you have ever said those words, then you are in the right place. I am teaming up with Advent Coworking to bring you Advent Podcast University, Charlotte's first comprehensive podcasting course designed to take you from your idea that you have right now to being on iTunes in four short weeks. Now, whether you're a hobbyist or you're ready to create a business and a brand around your podcast, this course provides you with the tools to bring your unique vision to life. Even if you're still trying to nail down that perfect podcast idea, we have you covered there too. So if you're ready to take your idea and get it on iTunes, go to yourpod.pro to sign up for details. Yourpod.pro. All right, let's jump into today's show. This week, I had North Carolina State Senator Jeff Jackson in the studio, and it was a lights out episode. It's easy to get discouraged in the current political climate, but Senator Jackson's optimism and positive vision for the future are infectious. In a little over an hour, we covered the issues that you care about and hammered out a plan to save the world. At the risk of alienating half of my listeners, let's jump into it. A lot of my listeners that I hear from are people who have taken that preordained path. They have gone to school or maybe even to law school. They have got the job, they bought the house, they bought the car, and now they're not happy. And they think that they're not the kind of person that can do something else. They, cannot, they can choose to do something bigger and different. Because I have to think, your backstory is you were in Gaston County at the DA's office, right? Yeah. And what is it, six weeks later you're yeah. in the state legislature? I, I had no idea that I was six weeks away from that. Like, where did you think you were? Like, what did you think the next 10 years of your life was going to look like? I pretty much had the next 30 years of my life mapped out. Wow. Yeah. I was going to be in the district attorney's office. I thought I might run for office at some point, you know, in the future. That was kind of on the bucket list, but it wasn't on the 2014 list. And I was really happy at the district attorney's office. Being a prosecutor is a really fulfilling job. It's one of the few jobs in the law where you never have to make an argument that you don't personally believe in. So if I didn't think someone was guilty, it was just case dismissed. And I didn't have to worry about taking grief from anybody. I just made that decision and wrote down on a form, dismissed. And that's very satisfying to be able to always follow your conscience. I can't even imagine. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a little of my backstory there. I went to law school to be a criminal defense attorney. Yeah. And it was very different than I thought it was going to be because uh, I had big visions. I, I didn't like the way the criminal justice system worked. I was a criminal justice major. And I, I saw the way it was working. I didn't really like the way it was working and just the disparity that I saw the way that some people were treated differently than others and things like that. And, and so I was, I was going to go change all that, all that, you know, but I wanted to go help and change it. And then I got there and it was very different than I thought it was going to be. And I, God bless the people who do it because I would go home at night and it kept me up. Yeah. The things I had to do. And I'm sure you saw it in the DA's office. You would see the criminal defense attorneys having to almost really destroy the character sometimes of what I thought were good people. 
Yeah. It's my job to undermine a very good police officer. Public defenders have an incredibly difficult job. I mean, first of all, they have a client in a way that prosecutors do not. You know, as a prosecutor, your client is the state of North Carolina, and she never called me up at two in the morning angry at me. You know, she loved me. Um, being a, pr- a public defender is just the most thankless but also most crucial job. They are so overworked. They have dozens and dozens of clients, and they're doing their best for each one of them. And to do that day after day, week after week, year after year, it's just grueling. Yeah, Folks who can stick it out 10, 15 years, they do an amazing public service. Absolutely. And I don't know how they do it because, like I said, I made it a year, and I realized very quickly this is not for me. And, uh, and it's so, burnout central there, yeah. man. It really, and we don't pay them anything and they can go across the street, hang a shingle and triple their salary if they're any good. Yeah. And you see that a lot. Sure. You know, good for them. Sure. So we'll dive into what you've been up to. Obviously, gerrymandering has kind of become synonymous with Jeff Jackson. It's uh, it was your first bill that you introduced when you got into the legislature. And it seems like it was one of those things you got in there, you introduced that bill and then immediately it took a high, you know, went off the high dive into a very shallow pool. Was like, did you understand that process while that was happening? Like that that was coming? I knew that it was not going to be heard in committee and then passed and then referred to the floor and then receive a vote on the floor and then sent to the governor for his signature or veto. Like I, I knew none of that was going to occur. But the extent to which the idea of independent redistricting just gets dismissed out of hand, despite the fact that everyone's basically for it. No one can defend the status quo from a moral standpoint. It is openly unethical to draw districts to make sure that you can't lose an election and your buddies can't lose an election. I mean, this issue has all the moral complexity of bank robbery. You just don't meet people defending (laughs) bank robbery. You don't meet people saying politicians should be able to draw the lines to make sure that they and their buddies never lose. Like this is a genuine no brainer. And yet, it's just been impossible for decades. I mean, look, all of the Republicans who are in charge right now, they all filed bills to end gerrymandering back when they were in the minority. And my party threw all those bills in the trash can because we never thought we would be out of power. Right? right. And then they take power in 2010, which was the key year because that was the redistricting year. And they turn around and just knock us with the most ruthlessly gerrymandered map in the history of the state. Partly they had the data that we didn't have and computers that we didn't have. Right. You could, you, even if you wanted to draw them that precise, you couldn't. Yeah. So I tell people, you know, Democrats didn't cheat as bad as Republicans, but, you know, virtue is mainly the lack of opportunity. And frankly, my party didn't have the opportunity right. to be as ruthless about it. Yeah. And I think when I was, you know, as I've been following you, I think that's one of the things that really stood out is it's almost one of the first things out of your mouth when you talk about the issue is, yeah, it absolutely happened. The Democrats did it. Got to. Otherwise, you have no credibility on the issue. And and I think that's one of the things you see in politics, though, is is that kind of double speak where, well, this is bad, but when we did it, it wasn't bad for X, Y, and Z. And and, and I think that that you just lose people. You just lose people. You just sound like another politician. People can't tell the difference. They can't tell whether you have good faith or whether you're just being conniving at that point. Because we all have complaints to make about the other side, but are you willing to own your own stuff? And I'll give you another example. When I first got there, I gave a speech about the budget because they put the budget on our desk in the morning and asked for a vote that afternoon. And I said, hey, we should have a chance to read the budget. And they said, look, when Democrats were in charge, we didn't even get it the morning of. We got it as we sat down at our desks and you couldn't touch the staples because they were still hot. (laughs) 
<laughs> my party completely abused its power when the Republicans were the minority. We had had basically absolute power in the General Assembly for 140 years. So what do you say to somebody whose chief concern is, well, if we give you the power back, what are you going to do that again? The first thing I say is what we're going to do is we're going to file a bill um, to end gerrymandering via constitutional amendment, which means, first of all, everyone in the state gets a vote on it because that's how we amend the Constitution in North Carolina. And then it's permanent. We need a moment where no one's quite sure who's going to be in charge for the next round of redistricting. Is it going to be Republican or is it going to be Democrat? Because then both sides have an incentive to come together and bury this weapon. To take, it's basically like the ring from the War of the Rings. It's too powerful. You cannot, can't, trust, can't trust anybody with it. You got to come together and just throw it in the volcano. So that's the first thing we do. We say we're going to make that a permanent piece of our Constitution so that we can never go back. And then the second thing I say is maintain your skepticism of me, of my party, of all of us. Main, watch us. If I said, trust me, trust us, that would be a big red flag. Sure. And I was talking with someone yesterday about that same thing. We were talking about people who, you know, end up screwing you over in business and things. And, and they said, the, the words that I listen for of all the words are trust me. Because yeah. the moment somebody says that, they're probably not someone you can trust. No. What I want to do is lower the barriers between the voters and the politicians in North Carolina so that when we screw up, you can throw us out of office much more easily. Because until the uh, court intervened and redrew our districts a few months ago, our districts were such that of 50 state senators and 120 members of the House, so you have a total of 170 state legislators, at least 90% of us were totally invulnerable. In a 50-50 state, 90% of us had zero chance of losing a general election, which meant we got a lot of lousy folks. We got folks who joke about the fact that they have 300,000 unread emails from constituents. You need to be able to beat us more easily than you can right now. Sure. Yeah, I like the idea of, of closing that gap between uh, the, the politicians and the people. And I feel like you've definitely done that. And even on the level of the way I find out most of the things that are happening in real time is because I see you talk about it. You know, I'm on my way to do this thing. Here's what I know about it. And these are things that were not that easy to understand in the past. Like when HB2 was happening, that that's how a lot of people are finding out about these kinds of things is we have this ability with technology where our politicians are telling us in real time, here's what we know, here's what's going on. And I think that has created uh, certainly a different relationship with the politician. We uh, You feel like you understand them better because they're not behind closed doors. Well, I mean, I think some still may be but they're not behind closed doors. They're telling you in real time what's going on and they're responding back to you in real time. One of the reasons people should be optimistic about the future of politics and the changes we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is because there's going to be this shift from politicians using social media kind of as a novelty and kind of that being a unique thing that some politicians do, but most don't, to an expectation we all have. We want to hear from them through that medium more than any other. Typically, people don't want me showing up on their doorstep or calling them at home. They want to be able to see what I'm doing on Facebook. They want updates through social media. And that's going to transition from being kind of a cool feature that a few people do to something we expect of all of them. Sure. And that's going to be great. 
You're going to keep showing up on their doorsteps, though, aren't you? I do. I enjoy that more than they enjoy that. <laughs> I get great stories. Well, feel free to make your laughs around Windsor Park. You're welcome. I love Winter Park. So, yeah, we uh, we just moved into your district uh, about uh, a little over a year ago. All right. I'll be seeing so you this summer. We're happy to be there. Okay, great. Uh, that brings me around to a topic I wanted to hit on because it's a topic that's very passionate to my heart, and that is the spoken word, podcasting. It, it's It's changed so much in the last two years. So many, it went from this thing that uh, it was very nerd culture. I feel like in the beginning, for the most part, people that like shows, people that want to talk about video games. And, and there were some politicians getting in, not politicians, but politics, uh, right. you know, the talking heads getting in on it. But it's gone to a different level now. And especially like last week when, you know, Tark and Larkin were on here, they are harnessing that power to speak directly to their constituents, to sit down right after the meeting and rehash what happened. And, and talk right to that person, right into their ear. Monday morning, they, they you know, or Tuesday morning, whatever, they put in their earbuds and they're like, here's what happened directly from my politician. Is that something that you're considering using? Uh, because I see you use social media very well and you're able to interact with people. And, uh, well, and one of the reasons that I'm really pushing that now is because I have made this, uh, I've, I have said, I think within the next two years, you're going to see a lot of politicians doing this, sitting down with the microphone and talking right to their constituents. And so I kind of want you to help me make my prognostication become true. Yeah. So that's the big part. But. Well, I think your prognostication will become true, irrespective of whether I do it or not. And I might, I don't know. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of politicians doing it because to be honest, look, I'm 35. I don't listen to the radio. And I don't watch local news. And for the last few generations, the number one way politicians communicated with people and got their word out was radio and local news. Well, I don't consume that at all. And something tells me I'm probably not alone among people my generation. Right. And I don't consume it at all. So there's going to be a shift, right? By necessity, we are going to find another way. And preferably, it wouldn't be through the filter of local news because I've I've done interviews with local news reporters and then seen what they act, what the edited product looks like. And I thought that doesn't look anything like what I thought I was saying. Right. There's a pull quote and now it implies everything you said. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even a good quote. (laughs) And that's why and that's why I think podcasting is so powerful, because there is none of that. You sit down, you speak your message. If you misspeak, you then correct yourself. And it's all right there, right to the person that you're talking to. So I think the ambiguity of that, that the filter of the media creates is wiped away. I agree. I mean, look, part of the problem, the big, huge fundamental problems that we have in politics right now, one of them is that folks only have 30 seconds a month to spend on politics. And they get that in 10 second increments from local news. And that's just not giving them a full enough picture to be an informed voter. We've got a lot of complex challenges that we're facing. And you're just not going to be an informed voter if you're getting 10 second snippets. At some point in your month, you need to hear a conversation about these issues. This this is tricky stuff that we're doing. Immigration, uh, which is just What's happening right now, this month, that's a tricky subject that if you only hear from people in 10 second bursts on it, you're not going to be very well informed on that issue. Sure. And I think that that's a problem that you see is most people, these issues are so complex that most people, they find themselves following the party because they don't have the time and perhaps inclination to educate themselves on it. So they hear from the person who they frequently hear from and they tell them, here's what you do. Default to the tribe. Right. And then you start seeing that, you know, you look at Facebook because that's, I think, where a lot of the arguing happens now. I think people are losing the ability to argue in person. And, and, but it's just rehashed arguments from their favorite talking head. 
and, and, and no one's listening to each other. No one's learning something from each other. And one of the things I heard you say really resonated with me on that very point is, you know, when someone approaches me and they don't agree with me on anything, I assume I operate from the default that they have something that I can learn from them. And I think that that is important in the, in the general public, but I think it's incredibly important for a politician to be able to say something like that, that, to say, I could learn something from this person who is attacking me. Because what did someone tell you, that you were going straight to hell? Yeah, I had this woman come up to me at the end of a panel on gay marriage, and she said she looked, she was, she looked like a nice, normal lady. You know, she was well-dressed, and there were no red flags going off as she approached and she looked like a business professional, and she shook my hand, and she said, you are such an articulate young man. It's too bad you're going straight to hell. <laughs> and I said, thank you for sharing your perspective. Did you find any positives in there uh, during that conversation? Um, that's the one that I'm still working on. But in every other conversation that I've had, I, I make it a strict rule to learn something from what they're telling me. Because honestly, I had a whole bunch of instances early on where I was you know, to myself, sort of dismissive as someone started to say something with which I disagreed. But the more they spoke, the more I realized, oh, no, there actually is something to learn here. And after that happened three or four or five times, I just decided, OK, new rule. Everyone has something to teach me. Whatever they're saying has some value in it. And that's great. I mean, that's a good rule. I've, I've really benefited from that. Oh, absolutely. And it's probably one I didn't learn until the last few years myself, because I think we're we're almost train, I don't know if train is the right word, but we come up learning that someone's different than us. They disagree with us. And then we immediately start formulating our response because we know what we know what they're about to say. They're about to say this thing. And, and I've said this other thing so many times that I just get ready into it because I, I mean, that was me for many, many years. I grew up in Washington, North Carolina. I don't know if you've been over there, lovely little place. And I grew up in a very Republican household. Uh, you, you just, that's what it was. Uh, Michael Dukakis was a terrible person. Bill Clinton was a terrible person and, <laughs> and that's how you operated. And I, and I believe these things. And so I was very versed in the arguments and I made them, uh, vociferously, if you will. And up until probably my mid to late twenties, uh, because I, I wasn't listening to other people. And th- one of the things that I have said a lot since then is on election night 2000. I was in Wilmington, North Carolina. I was pretty fresh down there, just a few months. And this girl came over the night we were watching the election, and she was, uh, I, don't, I don't know if the word hippie is the right word, but it's the best word I have. Uh, but really nice girl. But once the election came on, we started talking politics. Her and I just all night, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But through the years and all the people I've talked to, she was such an important person in my story. Because even though that night, I'm like, this girl's crazy. Everything she said is crazy. Her and I would get along famously today yeah. because so many of the things she said had so much truth. They just weren't my truth in that moment. And, and, and that's what I tell people. Even when you're arguing with someone and you feel like they're not listening and you feel like you're wasting your time, that girl's there somewhere. She doesn't know that she had this impact, but, yeah. but she did. And her and other people along the way helped shape and helped me understand where I was going and what I was doing. So that you it's know, the, hard to do, though, and it's definitely a learned skill. It's not something that you can just all of a sudden – you can't go from kind of a confrontational stance or personality to some, some someone who's inclined to listen. That's really difficult. One of the benefits of being in politics is you get a lot of at-bats with that. People want to talk politics, and they're okay with being confrontational with you and with disagreeing. So you get to learn kind of how to manage your emotions and let people in 
even when they're queerly diametrically opposed. Sure. It takes practice. You get better with time. Absolutely. It takes, a, I mean, it took me decades to just allow myself to say, I feel differently. Because when you hold a position that long, every year I feel like you hold it, it becomes harder and harder to change it. Yeah. Because now you have to say, oh, I don't believe any things I believe. So now I have to admit I was wrong for all that time. And, and I think for many of us, we have built our egos around being right. Yeah. And, and, and when we are called out, you know, or I mean, I think I think maybe politicians have it worse than the general public. Sure. Because what do you get called when you take in new information that yeah. helps you form a new opinion? Now you're flip flopping. Screws up our brand. Yeah. What are you flip flopping for? Yeah. And 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 I think that that's so dangerous because so many politicians don't now want to take a different position because they're going to get called out on it. The price is high. Yeah, and that's terrible. I'd, I'd love for that conversation to shift to say I have taken in new information that has caused me to see it in a different way. And now I think we should do this. I think that conversation will shift as we become just less ideologically rigid over time. Do you think that's going to happen? Yes, it's inevitable. And, and it has happened over the last 100 years, 200 years, 300 sure. years, right? On a long enough timeline, you see the, the portion of our brain that's taken up with rigid ideology just sh shrinks over time. We are more open to data. Right. And, and I ask that. I know it's always easy for, to stop and look at your period of time and feel like it's the only period of time. And, and so you, you have people, and I think this has been going on for thousands, I think since people could talk to each other and communicate, it, it has been the worst time ever. And, <laughs> and, and the youth are ruining the world. I had a woman come up to me last election when I was greeting voters at the polls, and I said, hi, ma'am, I'm Jeff Jackson, I'm your state senator. And she said, the country has never been more divided than it is right now. And I said, well, there was a civil war, you know? <laughs> It's been worse. We'll be okay. This is bad. I'm not going to say it's not, but we are going to be okay. That's a good retort. I think we were divided a little more at one point. Are, are you seeing... I, I, may, I feel like there is a good solid division right now. And, and may, I don't know if it's worse than it's ever been in my life. Uh, I wonder, because we see it on social media, we see this divide. And I don't know if it's, it's a product of the worse. media. It's probably worse than it's ever been in our lives. Okay. Yeah, this is probably as bad as it's been. Who knows? But it feels like, certainly since I've been politically conscious, this is as bad as it's been. Yeah, and that's and that's how it's felt, felt to me. Uh, I was very politically conscious growing up. Uh, and, and then even through my 20s, and, and then I started to fall off because it wasn't good for my brain. It, too much involvement and it was uh, it, it, it was very negative to me and it so I had to back of it a little bit so I keep kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on if something crazy is happening I'll know about that uh, but that that's where I found myself but where what do you see happening now that is going to lead us to a place where we're less divided like is there something going on yeah I think there is and I think it's going to be a new generation aging into the political process that holds a different set of values we are the most diverse, most inclusive generation, but we've also been exposed to exponentially more information than any generation in human history. We're, we're incrementally more diverse, but we're exponentially more exposed to information. And I think exponentially more comfortable with seeking out information and retrieving it and incorporating it into our arguments and our premises. That is a, a categorical shift that's occurring not along with the generational shift that has a lot of kind of demographic incremental shifts. The big game changer is the people who grew up with the internet joining the political discourse and how completely that will change the political discourse, how much more grounded the discourse will be in data. Sure. And that, that I think that's the thing that's blown me away over the last few years 
is our ability to retrieve information on a on a point has I mean it's this moment if you were like what's the name of the horse the never ending story I could find that yeah and that was something that you just had to call your friends and hope for the best and if they weren't awake you just had to go to bed not knowing you just didn't know yeah and 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 now that we have all this information it it blows my mind that we're at a place where disinformation is so Re- like readily accepted. Yeah, but that's predictable, right? And it's it's a stage in the evolution of the information age that evil that bad actors were going to become highly sophisticated at a certain point and that we were going to have to raise our defenses. And that's what we're going to do. Good answer. I like that cuz I that's something I've been struggling with and and that was very eloquently put. So <laughs> that's going to be a pull quote for the podcast right there. That was good. Um to follow up on that point, it, it seems that the so I'll, I'll I'll say something that I've been that you just made me think about just tangentially, but it was I read a book recently called Anti Fragile, and it, it discussed the when people come down on someone when they take all of their guns out and they point them at the same person. They're very aggressive and they and they come at somebody really really hard. It tends to bolster that person. And, and I'd never heard that argument before. I'd never heard it said before. And, and it was written before all this happened. And, and then, uh, do you know what the secret is? I'm not trying to get too hippie here on the podcast. The secret's when you like put something out into the universe, like Oprah style. Oprah style. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a, uh, from my very young ages, I'm a very touch it, feel it, taste it, smell it, touch it again type of guy. I don't want to hear any of your hoo-hoo. And uh, I, I read that book a few years ago and I couldn't read it. It was too much. But I came back recently and I read it again. And it's you just have to be in the right mindset to be able to trim the parts that are important for you. But one of the things they said is it, it, it talked about politicians specifically. And it said, if you watch, when people take their energy and they focus it on someone, whether it's bad or good energy, uh, and this isn't science, but you'll see that person start to rise to the top because they're receiving that energy. And, and, and I think, and then when I read Anti-Fragile, it, it took a more scientific approach to it as people will see that, what, why is that person being attacked? What is, what is so strong about them that these people feel like they need to attack? So I took kind of like the, you know, one side of it and, and brought the other side of it together. And, uh, and now I'm going to put you on the spot and see what your thoughts were on that. About the energy? Well, yeah. maybe not just, maybe not energy, but maybe take energy, the, the, con- the concept from The Secret and weave it in with the idea of that. So I guess the, the filter that I bring to this is um, the historical concept of, or the, the two competing histor- historical concepts of um, the, the, the powerful man theory of history versus the mega forces theory of history. And our nations guided by individuals who happen to rise to the top through a series of crazy circumstances, or are they more guided by these very powerful demographic forces. Um, and you know, did we need to produce an Abraham Lincoln in that moment? Was that absolutely necessary, uh, for our nation's history? I don't know. There were a lot of forces that pushed and it was, it was logical that someone of his political leaning was going to come forward in that moment. Did we get really lucky that he happened to be of such a character and of such an eloquence, we, that probably was incredibly lucky. And so, for, so there's, a, there's a point for the megaforce theory and there's a point for the great man theory. 
Yeah. And that's kind of where I come down. This entire idea is very new to me. My wife uh, is very much on board with that. And it's taken years for me to kind of see it. But it's I've started to see these kind of things start to happen in my own life. And so it's it's been a radical shift for me to go from, well, you have to prove it to me or I don't think it's real. Uh, and now I'm more of a, if it serves me, uh, I'll, I'll give it some attention. But just on energy, I will say that I've had a, enough experiences entering enough strange rooms with enough strange people at this point in my political career <laughs> that just after a few moments, I can feel what the energy is like in that room. Right. And there are a lot of cues, right? It's not just an entirely imperceptible thing, but you can, I can, this is the fourth room that I've been in today. And every room had a different type of energy that I reciprocated in a different type of way, just based on kind of subconscious feelings of how am I going to reach these people? And I'm sure that gets expressed in lots of different ways, tone of voice, body language, but there, there is something too, just a general reading of What's the energy happening right now? Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm a big student of what you just talked about, of feeling that energy in the room and reciprocating it, like the Dale Carnegie theory of, of how to make people comfortable, because that's generally, and, and as a politician, you would have to be able to do that. Like, I don't, I think it would be hard to be a politician. I mean, maybe, in, I don't know. I don't want to well, say- Well, the bad ones don't, don't reciprocate. Right. Or rather, not the bad ones, but the new ones. That's really the difference between someone giving their first stump speech or rather, the first stump speech at the beginning of your campaign or the stump, your last stump speech at the end. The difference is going to be your ability to connect with your audience and meet them where they are in a really imperceptible way, in a way that doesn't really involve changing any of your words, any of your phrases, but just involves changing your presentation. Right. Th those folks who have done it 60, 80, 100 times are just immeasurably better at that. They're, they're like a professional stand-up comedian being able to read the room. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I, 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 that's a good reference for me. Uh, we're very big fans of comedy. We have a small child now, so we don't see as much of it as we used to, but we used to go out and see live comedy all the time. And there's, there's one comedian I used to follow for years and years, and he's Mike Birbiglia. And I started following him in probably 06. He was pretty fresh, like out of school and doing comedy. And to see what he did then and what he does now, actually live and watch it, he's a master now. You know, you go back and you watch like early Dave Chappelle, it's not good. <laughs> it's you definitely know? different. It's different. These <laughs> folks get a lot better. Right. They sharpen, they kind of sharpen that uh, edge that they have. Yeah. Um, so I, I couldn't bring you here and not talk about Donald Trump a little bit. It's, uh, it's something that you haven't shied away from, so I didn't feel like I needed to shy away from talking to you about it a little bit. Is, do you feel like that that was a rise we should have seen coming? No, I was really surprised by it. It was a force that we should have seen coming, or, or, or I think that we did see coming. We knew it was widely reported that there was an incredible level of discontent and that that discontent was you know, centralized in certain demographic quadrants of our society. So we, we and a lot of his campaign rhetoric we had seen from previous candidates and they had gotten only so far with it. But the fact that he was able to go the distance on that rhetoric, that was completely unpredictable. Looking back, I don't feel bad, frankly, having failed to see his rise. And, and I will call myself out here. If you were to go back to July of 2015, there was a friendly debate with an old friend going on on Facebook. And, and he was betting his uh, chips on Donald Trump. And, and I just it was the silliest thing I'd ever heard. 
Like, yeah, it's cute what he's doing now and the way he's making fun of everyone on the stage. Like, I thought it was a laugh uh, just kind of watching that all go down. And I made a meme that very day of uh, uh, it's a it's a Van Wilder meme. And he's pointing and he's saying uh, Donald Trump will never be president. Write that down. And it still lives on my wall. I left it there because I'm going to own that. I'm going to own those feelings in that moment because I thought it was a joke. I was yep. like, write it down. It's not going to happen. And it's there. Yep. And I will say the day after the election, uh, the guy I was arguing with that day remembered it. He didn't go back and find the post, but he did come back to my wall and say, all right. <laughs> I got one worse for you. So on election night, after he had won Florida and after he had won North Carolina, I was at this bar. It was supposed to be this victory party. And we were all very shaken. And there was a reporter there. And I went up to him and I said, mark this down. Donald Trump is not going to win this election. And he said, why not? I said, because of my absolute faith in the American people. And then like an hour later, it was over. Yeah, I think by that point, I was pretty shaken. And I knew I kind of felt it was over. I was just I'd been keeping up all day watching those exit polls. And yeah, I I think a lot of people were surprised. A lot of people were surprised. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder if there was uh, any bookies that uh, made or lost a lot of money on that. You know, actually, I haven't read anything about that, but I'm sure some people made fortunes had to, off of that because the odds were very against it, it had to be at least 10 to 1 how long at the risk of alienating people which i really don't care about here because i'm a very big fan of the thousand true fans theory of the you know be who you are and the people who like you are going to love you and the yep. people who don't are never going to like you anyway yep. uh how long do you think this illusion that people have been sold is going to carry on because i know good people smart people who say things that are so far past what I think, like, you know, the, these coal mining jobs are coming back and, and things like that, that, that automation isn't going to kill people in, in the manufacturing area, that these jobs are actually going to come back. How long is that illusion going to sell with people before they go, oh, wait, we're not going to keep trying to do this? I guess another five or six years. I was hoping you were going to say like 90 days. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, <laughs> it's going to have, it's going to be around for a while because even after, it obviously has not come to pass. So give it a give it a couple more years for the results being quite obvious to just about everyone. Then how long does it take the brain to rationalize and accept the fact that that has not happened? And I guess double the amount of time. Yeah, it's it, we're just at an interesting time for me because throughout my life, I've even. When I was young, I very much thought that whoever the Democrat was that was running for president was probably not a very good guy. But as I look back over the course of my life, I I think that everyone who's been president was doing what they thought was best. Like, I I very much think that, Uh, you know, certainly in our lifetime. Right. I don't think you have any bad actors. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I don't agree with all the decisions they made. But at the same time. And there were character flaws and major failings. Right. Bill Clinton, major personal failings, major character flaws. Sure. But categorically distinct. From yeah. our current president, categorically with respect to character, yeah, I, I, and, and I feel the same way because that's usually the the first thing that comes up is oh well, Bill Clinton, and I agree. I don't think I, I wasn't in the space to be making good commentary in that moment, but I don't think that the Democrats handled that properly. No, they didn't. You know, he should have gone under the bus where he belonged in those moments, perhaps. And that's just a personal feeling of mine. I'm not saying other people need to share that, but he certainly had a lot of shortcomings that they were very willing to overlook. Correct. Uh, that I don't think in this current climate, maybe they would, or at least I would hope not. Correct. Uh, but when I look over it, I think that everyone was doing what they thought was right. And, and you know, even through the 2000s, when, when Democrats just wanted to hang, you know, George Bush, at the same time, now when he comes around and does the rounds on TV, you're like, 
oh my God, look at this guy. Yeah. I'll take him back. Yeah. You know? And, uh, well, but there, there just seems to be, uh, I think he was doing ultimately what he thought was right. And I think he wanted what was best for the country. You might be right about that. I mean, there's certainly a, a major difference of character. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's what I see is, is maybe there was some, I, I don't know. I don't want to dig in. That's and past, a difference but. of intellect as well. I mean, I'll, I'll go out on a limb. I don't think it's a, I think it's a sturdy limb. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and with but, every day, every passing day, it becomes a sturdier limb. And, and I think that's what that's what bugs me so much is, is all of the, the level of discourse coming out of the White House is so low. And, and and I wouldn't have expected the people to accept that and be okay with it. Just the types of things that are said, like the awful things that were, were said. Uh, is it Mika? Is that her name? Yeah. That kind of stuff is so unbefitting. Of, of even like if my if I had a son and he said that, I, what are you thinking? You don't talk about people no, like that. You're right. So, I mean, the initial shock with the whole Trump phenomenon was how popular he was, even within the base. When his poll numbers started to shoot up and stayed up after he said a bunch of horrible things, like that was the initial shock. The second shock, which has been bigger, is the level of complicity um, among people we all thought to be good people, despite the fact that we might disagree with them politically. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan, I didn't have any questions as to his character. The level of complicity, those folks will be remembered for that forever. I don't think they quite appreciate. They are forming their legacy right now in choosing to bow so deeply to someone of such low character and is such a destructive force in our country. It doesn't matter what tax reform they pass or what regulatory reform they pass, they're not going to be remembered for that. Their legacy is going to be this moral failing. They are facing the moral test of their lives, and they are failing. Bam, I feel like I need to drop a microphone somewhere. It's. It, I like that you said that My uh, right after the election happened. I, uh, I don't think my family listens to this podcast anyway. They hear me talk enough in person. But I have members of my immediate family who I love dearly, and I trust their opinions to the ends of the earth. They're great people. Um, but that I had such a disconnect with in that moment, like the days after the election, like my sister and I had a na- kind of a nasty falling out for a few days there because I said, how could you do this? And, and, and I, and I'm, I'm past that now, but my wife and I talked a lot about this and, and we said in that moment, it was, it was that feeling of, we're going to say, I told you so one day we're past that. We're past their needing to needing to feel that way at all because we we do care what's best. That's what's important to us. But in that moment, like it, we were so frustrated and angry because it it wasn't everything he'd said. It was the character he displayed that we knew we were going to get more of, and we are honestly worse than I thought. And I'll tell you, a lot of my Republican friends uh, have come. You know, we've had conversations, and, and they say I was wrong. You know, I don't, I don't, they don't, I don't know. They've gone so far as to say I wouldn't vote for him again, but they've said I thought that a lot of this was a dog and pony show, and and that he was actually going to clean it up and that he was going to do something. And and a lot of them said, you know, I, I was, I, I was wrong about the thing. He's not doing. He's kind of a clown. And you know, I clearly didn't support him and was horrified when he won. But he did have an opportunity when he won to shake things up in a way that could have been helpful because he didn't owe either party anything. He didn't owe the Democratic Party anything. He certainly didn't owe the Republican Party anything. They fought him all the way until the day of the election. He could have been more or less an independent, right? the first independent president, and he could have taken the best from both sides and rejected the, be- the worst from both sides. 
And instead, he chose not to do that. He chose to just play golf and be vile. Well, I think that I think it speaks to his uh, his nature. I think that he is choosing this horse and this party along everything else because it feeds his ego. I think that he wants to be loved for for all of his shortcomings. I think that's what he wants. He wants people to tell him that he's the greatest and that he's loved. And I think if he was independent, he w- he wouldn't get that. I think that we can agree that at least in the short term, yeah, the crowds would go away. Right. In the the short- Fox and Friends would go away. Right. He wouldn't have those people that he could tweet and be like, thanks for saying nice things about me, because he would have to prove that he is in the middle and that he's doing things that matter. And history shows that you did the right thing. Right. And and I think that he wants the opportunity to rah, rah, rah. Yeah, he can't take that pain. Yeah. The short-term pain of having people, the Steve Bannon folks, turn on him and say, what are you doing? You're a traitor to our cause. He can't take that pain. Yeah. Even though that's plainly what he would need to hear as a sign that he was on the right road and that he was in pursuit of the best interest rather than a very narrow interest, yeah, which isn't even in their interests, honestly, in the long run. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of leaning towards this. I'm thinking about adopting this rule of only criticizing Trump by quoting other highly respected Republicans. Or Donald Trump. Yeah, or Donald Trump of past. Well, that's yeah. just been the easiest thing, the easiest way to criticize him. And this went on for a little while, and I think it's probably still happening. But instead of saying anything, they just drop a quote that he actually said, like today. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's, uh, I would never want someone to know I said that out loud. That's true. I kind of want to just gather the whole nation and just make them watch 15 minutes straight of him talking. Just 15, any 15 minute clip. Well, and and that was one of the things that before the election, my sister and I had been talking a lot already. uh, And I sent her some videos. I'm like, just watch these. Because you, you know, can't do it. You can't get all the way through. I can't. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it's interesting. Um, so I want to loop back around and say, and, and well, I'm actually going to serve up the question. What do you think? Do you? I'll, I'll rephrase that. How do you think gerrymandering has played into the situation that we're in, even on, on this national level? Directly. So one of the big things that gerrymandering has done is it's forced everyone to go to run to their left or their right because they can't lose a general election. They can only lose a primary. So if you're a politician and you're smart, you're thinking only about re-election, then you can ignore 90% of your constituents because only 10% vote in a primary. So you become very far to the left or very far to the right. And because there's been a a ton of intense gerrymandering in Southern states, we've got this new crop of very highly conservative Republicans, uh, the Freedom Caucus, who are there to say no to any reasonable compromise. And that, in combination with the Hastert rule, which is the Republican rule that says they're not going to bring anything to a vote that a majority of the Republicans don't support, has been the bane of our political existence as a nation for the last 15 years. We haven't been able to have any reasonable compromise on any major issue for two decades because of these hyper-Republican Republicans who won't say yes to any form of compromise. I mean, the immigration debate is stalled because they will not accept anything other than the deportation of 12 million people. Full stop. That's it. That's why we have had no reasonable... There is an obvious compromise that both sides, a majority of both sides can agree on, and it involves spending some money on border security and providing a path 
to citizenship, and that is 100% inevitable. It will happen in the United States of America. There is no other way to deal with the situation. And the only reason it hasn't happened, as just one example, you got 80 Republicans who are unable to compromise. Because if they do, they'll lose the only election they can lose, which is the primary. They have poisoned that well so many times that they can't afford to be reasonable on that issue. Same with Medicaid expansion. The expansion of Medicaid is unanimously popular in the General Assembly in private. So it sounds like 10% of people are starting to determine who our officials are that are making decisions for the other 90%. In, in North Carolina, the 10% of North Carolinians who vote in the Republican primary control the entire legislative agenda. The other 90% of us literally do not exist. Right. And that is because of gerrymandering. We're a 50-50 state. We have an opportunity to model for the country what 50-50 could look like, what a bipartisan agenda would actually look like in the 21st century. Nope. It's a far-right agenda. Has been since 2012. So what do you think we're going to see in the next year on that? We're going to see, I believe, a ruling from the Supreme Court, June, July, that says political redistricting, or rather political gerrymandering, is against the law, or at least put some outer limits on political gerrymandering. And it's going to be a five-to-four decision either way. So we're all waiting to see what Justice Kennedy has to say. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Right, I could be wrong about this, but I, I'm reading the tea leaves pretty close. I think he's going to put some outer limits on political gerrymandering, and that will be the most important Supreme Court case so far this century. More important than Citizens United, more important than Bush v. Gore, and it will be a phenomenally positive force because it will require redrawing political districts all over the country in a way that makes them more competitive in a way that brings us closer to the people. There are Democratic states that are engaged in ruthless gerrymandering. So this isn't just a Republican thing. Sure. Power grabs. Maryland. Ridiculous. Nice. So you're very popular on social media to kind of take another turn with it. It's, it seems, you know, obviously back in, was it 2015, you were the only person to show up to work, and uh, that kind of really set off your social media presence. Was, that, was I characterizing that properly? Yeah, that was my 15 minutes. <laughs> I think it's led to a couple extra minutes. Uh, but I, I was actually following that as it was happening because I was on my couch, and it was starting to get reported in you know national news. And then you know I think you had a BuzzFeed article that really set it off. Is that what really set it off? Yeah. Yeah, that BuzzFeed article, which I will link on the blog in the show notes. It's kind of a little fun to, to follow that. Um, was like, what was, uh, take me through that morning. Like, were you like, I'm just going to go out there and have some fun? Well, the weather was terrible. It was, uh, there was snow on the ground and I think there was some ice on the ground. And I had an appointment in Raleigh that morning and I couldn't reach the guy to cancel. And I was worried that he was going to show up and fight his way through the snow and I wasn't going to be there. And so kind of out of a sense of guilt, I drove into Raleigh. And when I got to the general assembly, I was the only person there. Oh, there was security there. I walked in and I asked the security guard, I said, have you seen any other legislators? And she said, no. And as soon as she said that, I knew what I had to do. <laughs> I just, I saw the whole thing. So I just started tweeting. I told people, hey, I'm the only one here. We're going to start holding some votes. Time to start making progress in North Carolina. Uh, so I picked issues that I thought would be emblematic of a bipartisan agenda if we were capable of having that as we should. I didn't go far left. I didn't go Bernie's wish list, right? I just did, okay, we're gonna raise teacher pay to the national average, because it was there not too long ago. We can get back there. We're gonna support renewable energy. Solar is gonna be a big deal in North Carolina. Um, early childhood education, we need to make some expansions there. We need to expand Medicaid to take our own federal government tax money back 
and spend it on covering hundreds of thousands of people in North Carolina. Just stuff that I thought was basically reasonable. And I don't know. I, it wasn't so much the content that I was producing, the agenda items. I think it was just people liked the idea that there was this legislator by himself in the General Assembly on a snow day. And there was kind of a romance about that. And it just took off, man. My phone started ringing. Actual lobbyists started to call and ask me what was going on. And I said, I don't know, but I think you better get down here. I'm hearing something. You better get down here. <laughs> yeah, I think you have a second job in your future if you want it, you know, going out and uh, creating viral moments for people. Yeah. Well, lobbyists <laughs> scare easy, so. <laughs> um, so you're using social media in that way to, to reach out and speak and, and, and communicate but you're not stopping there either. That's one of the things I see. When I see a Jeff Jackson post, I see you post. But then when I look at the comments, I see Jeff Jackson commenting as well. You are interacting with people. And is I think that that makes, I know when people see that and you respond back to them in a way that isn't aggressive, you're just talking to them. Here's what I think. I think that really speaks to someone because I've had people tell me like, Jeff responded to me. And, and that makes them feel a lot more involved in the process. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. But again, it's a low bar these days to impress people as an elected <laughs> official. Like, that's not that impressive. The fact that I'm putting stuff on Facebook that's substantive and not just, you know, cheering for myself or asking for money, that's not impressive. I actually interpret that to be part of my job, like a basic duty. And when people ask me good faith, serious questions and they get a response that is also part of my job. People will call me and leave a message and I'll call back and they're always shocked when I call back. And I think that's so sad because they really shouldn't be. Right. Uh, I think my favorite response that I've seen, well, the one that certainly made me, uh, made me laugh the most and share it the most with other people was uh, the, the, the person that was calling you out for being a JAG officer uh, who had never seen any. Uh, I'm sure that this rings a bell, right? And, I felt uh, bad for the guy. Well, sure. But I mean, I mean, it he was, didn't know what he was walking into. He did not. And, uh, and then you drop the picture of yourself in Afghanistan. Come at me, bro. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, he didn't he didn't know my full military record, which is fine. I understand that. But he chose to assume what my military service looked like uh, and that I had always been an attorney for the army. And that's not the case. So, yeah, I posted a photo that that showed that. And the number of responses to that photo, I mean, it was like a 1500 comments. <laughs> The, of like slamming this poor kid. And after like 500 comments, I was talking to my wife. I was like, doesn't he understand he can delete his comment and all this pain goes away? It all disappears. Yeah, and he eventually did, but it was once it had reached like 1,500 comments. It had been screenshotted a lot by then. Yeah. Because when, I don't even know if I actually saw it on the post. I think I may have seen it on a screenshot yeah. that I then subsequently you know, shared around. And, and I wasn't part of the pile on. I try not to do that uh, because no one gets better through any of that. And I think it just speaks to the age I am. If I'm 25, I'm probably part of the pile on. Like, yeah. Screw you, you said something stupid. <laughs> yeah. So that just speaks to where I am right now. But uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, to your military service, I one of the things that sticks out to me is, is the fact that you not only serve, but you still serve. You kind of break that, that mold of what I think a lot of, at least Republicans, certainly like to push forward as, because they have certainly taken it upon themselves to be the party of the military, that they love the military more than anyone else. And, and the, the Democrats don't, we, we don't like the military. I, 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 that's the wrong word. I am not a registered Democrat. I don't want to say we, I certainly feel more for that party than I ever have in my life before, but that people who are more liberal minded is a better way to put it. Don't care for the military. 
And, and I grew up with that kind of sentiment, with that mentality as well. Like I'd, I always heard it that essentially the Democrats are a bunch of pansies that want handouts and, and aren't willing to do what it takes to be number one. Uh, and <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but and I know that you're not the only person out there challenging that, but you're one of the most visible who who after, you know, you got out of college after 9-11, you signed up, you went, you served, you continue to serve. And, and but you also still hold these core beliefs that that challenge the the rhetoric, I think, sometimes it's put out. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake. I understand Democrats frustration at how Republicans have kind of made militarism a piece of their platform. There's a literally a train. Oh, yeah. I'm going to leave it in if it goes quickly. Rolling on yeah. top of us. Yeah. And this is actually I've been recording here for uh, uh, like a year and a half or so. And I know the train's here, but it's I've never actually had it run while I was recording. I've had it. I've had it come like five minutes after. It's like six inches. Out <laughs> oh, yeah. Of it's room. like right on the other side of the wall. It, it, it's wild. It usually goes pretty quickly. Uh, but I can't tell if it's going to go fast enough because some of them are super short. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the big downsides to recording here is sometimes the train comes, but it's always gone pretty quickly. Well, I do a phone bank here, and I was on the phone with a woman the other day, and that train rolled by, and I was like, excuse me, ma'am, there's a train. And it was like 90 seconds of waiting for the train to pass. Yeah, sometimes they're a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> She's already like not inclined to speak to me because I'm some stranger calling her at 730. Right. You know? Why are you calling at dinner time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was I talking about? We were talking oh, the about the military. Right. Um, yeah, look, it's ridiculous that, you know, there is this assumption that, well, Republicans are more in favor of our military and our service members than Democrats, but that's a narrative that Republicans at the national level have been pushing for the last couple of decades. So I can understand why that narrative is built up. I'm not interested in trying to flip that and saying, no, no, it's actually Democrats that are the pro-military, pro-army, pro-service member no, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to do my service and let it speak for itself. Right. And and that's more how I see it is, is I think everyone is pretty well equally committed to the, uh, you know, to the military. We understand its role. Now you're going to have your outliers, which are the ones that you're always going to see memes made of. And yeah, we quotes shame come those from. people, right? I mean, as people um, attack service members, those people don't have a following. Those people right. are ridiculed. I mean, right. that's a terrible, that's no longer a socially acceptable position, no matter what you think of the war, attacking the service members who get ordered to go is not an acceptable response. Right. And I, and I think that maybe that's one of the worst lies I think that people pushed was if you don't support the war, you don't support the troops. And, I just don't think many people buy that anymore. I don't think they do either, but I think that I, I think it was bought more during our, our last, you know, real war. Like, and honestly, I hope that after Iraq, we're all much more comfortable being skeptical of claims of invading other countries. Yeah, and, and I, I would hope that we are. I suppose that that will play out, and we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I don't want to go to North Korea. Sure. Yeah, I, I don't want to either. And speaking of North Korea. Uh, I saw that you you discussing not North Korea, but actually here at home, some North Korea style parades that perhaps were being planned. What are your thoughts on that? Insane. Um, I mean, if I thought for a minute that Trump was actually interested in holding an event to honor the troops, an event that was for the troops, that would be different. But I am 100 percent certain that his motivation in having a military parade is to glorify himself. 
and to attach himself even more closely to the military and militarism, and that it has nothing to do with the troops, and that they would be treated as a grandiose prop for him to show the world what a big man he is. And that's incredibly disrespectful to, to those troops, treating them as a prop. And it's also a scary sign in light of the other authoritarian moves that he feels comfortable making. Absolutely. And that was that was probably my biggest argument in the beginning when it started to be serious that I thought he could actually make a real run at it was if you look at his actions and his words, they're, they're out of our history books. So many of the things in his, his ideas were right out of that authoritarian history book that we've seen so many people do before. And I kept thinking every moment, I'm like, all right, that's the thing that people are going to see. And they're going to go, oh, wait, wow, we've seen this before. We have got to act now. And it never happened. And it still hasn't happened. Uh, so that's the part that scares me. And then when I saw that we're working, you know, this, and, and I don't want to mischaracterize it because I don't know everything that has been talked about, but that is a scary sign. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I, it's something so insane that I can't picture it. Right. Now, granted, so was his election, <laughs> but this would be like the next most crazy thing sure. that has happened in our country. I mean, the streets aren't even, and Abrams' tank is 60 tons. You can't run a 60-ton tank with treads on a city street in D.C. You have to have a repaver right behind it. Yeah, and then I think the next question is, why would you? Why would you? Is this really how you want to spend money? Yeah, but... I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I hope not. Well, I don't want to keep you here all day, but there's one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, and it's one of your big issues is early childhood education. Yeah, great. And, and I want to get your thoughts on it, and uh, I'm going to take a few minutes and give my thoughts on it too. But it's something that you are a big proponent of, and honestly, of all the things that I've listened to you talk about, it's the one that excites me the most because I think it's the one that brings all the boats up. I think you're right. And it brings all the people together too. This is something that basically everyone can agree on. I mean, the poll numbers aren't 100% across the board for everyone, but as far as political issues, it's very clear that everyone has a deep intuitive sense of how important it is to reach kids while they're young. But let's start with third grade. So the end of third grade, your reading scores for the end of third grade end up being this really significant ac academic metric because the end of third grade, beginning of fourth grade is when you transition from reading to learn to learning to read. And if you never make that transition, chances are, first of all, if you don't make it at the end of third grade, that you never will. And if you never will, you've got a really hard time holding down a good job for the rest of your life. And almost all of our high school dropouts are kids who don't get across that literacy bridge and are never really proficient in reading. And right now, 60% of our third graders are not getting across that bridge. 60% of our kids are not proficient in reading, over half. And that's wild. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Everyone has an understanding that it's really important kids know how to read so that they become adults who understand how to read. So if for no other reason, early childhood education should be focused on because it's the key to literacy, because you don't start reading when you're three, when, when you're in third grade or second grade, you start learning to read when you're two, three, four. We have thousands of kids showing up to the first day of kindergarten, never having held a book, not knowing a single letter in the alphabet. Those kids almost overwhelmingly never catch up. Sure. They I mean, are so far behind. They're years behind. By the first day of kindergarten, we can fix this. We know how to fix this. It's not a miracle. It's high quality early childhood education. Turns out there is a difference between normal 
early childhood education and high quality early childhood, you get dramatically better results when you have high quality early childhood and you get all these other collateral benefits, right? In addition to the the socialization benefits, you get these benefits for working families. One of the leading expenses for working families is childcare, especially if it's going to be high quality childcare. I can attest to that. If you, so can I, man. <laughs> yeah, I got two kids. If you really want to find a way to help working families work, then that's a great way to do it. And Republicans are talking about that all the time. Daycare can be so expensive that it can prevent households from becoming two income households when they otherwise would be. So this is just one of those issues that should bring everyone together, whether you're a liberal and your heart just aches for these kids who are going to repeat the cycle of poverty, or whether you're conservative and you want to shrink the size of government and you don't want to spend as much on welfare or prisons and you want the dropout rate to go down. Hey, guys, it's the same answer either way. It's 1% of our budget right now. If it goes to 2%, it's a total revolution in the space. We can do 2%. I, I promise you we can do 2% without raising taxes right? Without doing anything crazy. It's not a radical proposal. No. And that's, I mean, you are speaking right to my heart on that one too, because that's the thing that I'm a criminal justice major. And I had an excellent professor who who really brought these issues to my attention. Uh, I'm going to, not that he'll ever hear, but it's Dr. John Kerbs at East Carolina University. He's an excellent professor. And, and this was very near and dear to his heart about getting in there early and improving lives from the very beginning instead of trying to come back around later and put them in prison. It works. That early intervention works. Why well, like, wouldn't you do it if you knew that it worked? Like you've said this before, there's more com- there's more prisons than there is community colleges. Yeah, we got like, 60 prisons in North Carolina. Like Anybody want to see 70? <laughs> Anybody want to see 80? Yeah, and that's, that's such a huge problem because with what we know about recidivism, you know, I know that there is this idea and it's antiquated to me that we are going to give people the stick. We're going to show them. They stole this TV. They're going to go to jail and they're going to pay for it. And, and while I get that, because I mean, I've had people break into my house and I'm like, I hope he burns. Um, so, so I get the, the anger in that, but it's not about me in that moment. It's about doing what is right for society in that moment as well. And we know that incarcerating people for extended periods of time does not make society better. 90% of our juvenile delinquents are functionally illiterate. That's not a coincidence. It's a cause. Yeah. Do we really think if they can all read and write well that we're going to see the same levels of juvenile delinquency? Of course not. Those levels go down because they have other things that they can do with their time that compensate them. I'm not talking about making every kid a Rhodes Scholar. I'm just saying we all agree that all of our kids need to be able to read and write well, don't we? Well, if so, we got to back the on-ramp up. It can't just be the beginning of third grade. The on-ramp starts at age two. The evidence is clear. If we're all looking at the evidence and we have kind of data-informed perspectives, then that just emerges as kind of an obvious policy move that we need to make. And it coincides with where we all are intuitively. Before we see the data and the studies, we all get it. I'm going to give you my take on it, and then I'll let you take it and run with it and make it happen. Um, because when I say this out loud in the wrong, in the wrong company, um, you know, I, oh, I get the size. Uh, but but I, the way I see the – it's very similar to what you're saying. But I think that we take for the long-term goal, we get into these low-income communities where this is happening, where these people are showing up and not being able to read. And we invest there like we've never invested before. We take our resources and we pull them there. And and the first the first thing that always comes up, the first objection is always, oh, freeloaders, freeloaders. And and I say, fine, 
Maybe there are freeloaders. Maybe we just write that off. We treat it like a business. It's a cost of doing business because we can't do it without them. Some people are going to mooch and that's just the way it's going to be. But we can't bring up all the boats without without the moochers too. They got to come too and that's just the way it's going to be. But after a generation, another generation, we're going to see a completely different community that is going to be on par with the other communities. And But it's the same thing. It, it People want to know what you can do for them tomorrow, not what you can do for them in 30 years. Right. And that's a 30-year plan before you might even see like significant results. You're right. It's a 20-year investment. But at the end of the 20 years, you see major results. And at the end of two 20-year cycles of investment, now you have broken the generational cycle of poverty for a major percentage of kids who otherwise would have repeated it. 25% of our kids live in poverty. Are we going to treat the symptoms with prisons? When they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s, are we going to just shift that money up front? The thing is, it does take 20 years to see the return. But once you see it, it becomes obvious. Oh, of course, this is where we need to double down. This is the highest ROI of any dollar that we can spend in the realm of government. Higher than any transportation investment or energy investment or healthcare investment or military investment, even within the world of education better than any other educational investment. You got a dollar to spend and your only interest is getting as many dollars back as possible. You spend it in the early childhood. It's that long-term goal. Is, uh, hold on one second. We'll make a cut there. I almost never have cuts in my, uh, in my show, but I'll make it there because I had a follow-up there and then I was too engaged in listening and I lost it. It's good. It's, <laughs> it's a good problem to have. <laughs> so I know what all the arguments are against this type of thing as far all's the wrong word i know what the loud ones are the ones i hear the ones i hear repeated what do you think the real reason that legislators like do they believe what they're saying or is there another reason that this is not something that they want to do no i think they they believe what they're saying here i think that they actually do want to do this and that's a good question because there are a lot of issues where publicly they say i'd love to do this and in private they say actually i have no interest in doing that at all I don't think early childhood is in that camp. It is a money issue, but it's also an issue of we don't exactly know the best way to spend that money because even within early childhood, that's a pretty big universe. There are a lot of different points of emphasis. Nurse family partnership and home visiting programs really important for ages zero to two. Do you max that out? Do you focus on universal pre-K? A lot of people, when they hear early childhood, they default to, oh, he means pre-K. He thinks we should have universal pre-K. Is that where we should spend all of our money? Probably not, right? Because age four is probably too late to get the full benefit of the investment that you could have. So now you're talking smart start, kind of that in-between space. So you know, unless you're willing to, to you know, triple or quadruple the amount of money that we spend, which is probably not going to happen, you have to be strategic about how you allocate funds within early childhood. And no state has gotten this perfectly right. We wish we were in a position where we could say, okay, well, Oregon nailed it. So we're going to do what Oregon did. But that hasn't happened yet. It will have happened 20 years from now. We'll be able to look back because there are states you know, like Oregon and like New York and like Florida and Tennessee and Oklahoma even that are starting to move big into this space. So we will have a lot of data as we move down the road. But right now we don't do that. And that brings some hesitation because you're taking a risk. Maybe we're not going to get the 10 to 1 ROI. Maybe we'll only get a 5 to 1 ROI. And another counter argument that I always see and, and on almost every issue is we don't care how they do it in Oregon. This is North Carolina. Yeah. Or, you know, and then obviously with different issues, we don't care how they do it in Sweden. 
You know, either that wouldn't work here or America, we don't care. Right. You know, Um, so I I certainly hope that's that's something that the younger generation isn't going to buy into as well. Luckily, there are enough deep red states that are moving in this direction that you you kind of inoculate yourself from that. You know, Oklahoma is moving to universal pre-K. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that, that's good to hear because that's certainly where I like to hang my hat, and and that's the thing that I think makes me the most liberal to my conservative friends is I is I think that we should be going in and helping people that need help, you know, because the the standard you know the standard argument the standard argument is well if we keep you know if we keep doing that then we're just gonna have to keep feeding them forever, and and that's insane. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, I understand some people say, look, if you've got a thirty five year old man living in poverty. You can have a debate about whether that's his fault or whether that's society's fault. Okay, perhaps, right? And it's probably some of both, right? We've got individual responsibility issues, and then we have certain social failing issues. Fine. But when you're talking about a a five-year-old who's never held a book, no one's blaming that five-year-old, right? I mean, we can all agree, basically, no child deserves to live in poverty or be doomed to repeat the cycle. If a kid hasn't learned how to read hasn't even been exposed, hasn't been given a chance to really learn how to read. No one's blaming that kid. And my problem is, is that's universal generally. Most people will say, well, I feel bad for the kids. But my answer is that 35-year-old man was the five-year-old you cared about 30 years ago that you don't care about now. That's it. Yes. So if you really are very critical of grown adults who are living in poverty, then I need to hear from you some understanding that we've got to focus on kids. Because to dismiss both of those groups actually just tells me you don't care what's happening to other people. Yeah, big. Uh, A couple more questions and I will let you get out of here. Uh, This one's kind of pointed. Uh, Feel free to dodge it. I know you've said that you haven't been in politics long enough to be a very good question dodger. Um, How do you think, how would you characterize the way that the Republican Party has used religion to their advantage. Oh, gosh. I know it's a minefield. That's like the next podcast, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I mean, honestly, my first thought goes back to Trump. You know, the 80% evangelical support, just remarkable. The I, I will be charitable and call that compartmentalization. That allows that to occur. That's incredibly charitable. And and I have some pretty strong opinions on that as well. I, from eighth grade to 10th grade, went to a Free Will Baptist school, high school. And to have lived in the middle of that, and I grew up Catholic, so I was the devil already. I mean, they accept, they let me in, but they always were very quick to let me know that I was not like them. And, and they were just so pious and so quick to, I mean, even the, a symbol on a t-shirt held the devil in it. That kind of thing, and to know that that and that 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 group of people then turned around and embraced this, it, it blew my mind. I didn't think it would happen. I didn't think it would happen either. Yeah, I thought Ted Cruz kind of had a lock on the evangelicals, and if Ted Cruz didn't win, then they would sit this election out. But they decided to go all in for like one of our nation's worst people. Um, yeah, I, I still don't understand that. I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being here. It's uh, it's been a, one of the, my favorite conversations. That's not to say that I haven't had great conversations. I love all my guests the same equally. Right. Yep. Um, but this has been a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, I honestly, when I heard that early childhood education, 
when I heard you talk about that, that was the thing that really hit me because it's the thing that, that I, that my wife is probably tired of hearing about. Uh, I, I became a podcaster because I like to talk and, and my wife just ends up being the beneficiary of all those words sometimes. Oh man, I feel so bad for her. <laughs> I do too. Um, uh, we have talked a lot about this and, and I've told her, I'm like, look, sometimes if you don't want to listen, just, just do that. And I'll be like, all right. I'll go out and talk to the dog or something because I feel like I have a quota of words that have to come out every day. If I don't get them out, something bad will happen. But she doesn't always want to hear them. But that's one of the issues I think that I just hit over and over and over is it's not a complicated issue. Now, the answer might be complicated in actually implementing it. Right. But what we need to do is it makes the most sense. Like, get in there. Bring these boats up. These people are going to stop breaking the law and stop hurting people and stop hurting society. And not only are they going to stop hurting society, they're going to start giving back to society in tangible ways that are going to make society thrive. Right. As a prosecutor, I tried thousands of cases. I met maybe five truly evil people who were going to be involved in the criminal justice system no matter what. Everybody else didn't need to be there. Yeah. Weren't born on that course. Right. Well, I really appreciate you being here. What is... Uh, like, you know, I think you get this question a lot because you're doing very well where you are. Where do you see this political career going? Because I know there's a number of us. I keep saying us, um, but I certainly I like what you're doing personally. Um, I, I didn't bring you here to tell you that, but I do. I, I like where your head's at, probably because it's where my head's at. But I like it. I think uh, you certainly come across as genuine as somebody who really cares about helping the state. Where do you see your role in this country? Um, I would... I would really like to be able to have some more influence in the General Assembly. There's a lot of good that can be done here at the state level. Most of the laws that get passed that affect your lives are coming from the state level. So if I could, if, which means honestly my party has to win some seats, um, if we could get in a position where we could start putting together an agenda, a modest agenda, it wouldn't be, I mean, not a reach for the stars agenda that's not on the table right now. That would be incredibly rewarding. I think I could do some good at helping craft a real bipartisan agenda for our state. Nice. And I keep saying this, but one more question. What's it like being, uh, are you the only millennial in the state Senate? I will be. We've got one other one right now. He's announced he's not running for re-election, so I will be the only. Yeah, one. what's that like? Do they try to kick you around at all? No, it's really fine, you know. Is I, I went around when I first got there and I went into the office of every single senator and just let them know, hey, I'm here to do work. To the extent that you need help doing work on something, I'm happy to do that. And so I've gotten to know these folks well enough now that, you know, they, they forget about how I I think they've forget about how young I am when we're talking Sure, because I do my homework. I read the bills. I talk to the people who write the bills. I talk to staff. I educate myself about this stuff. And when I go up and I talk to them about it, I'm not there to beat them up. I'm there to say, look, section three's got an issue. Let's yeah. work on section three. And they don't look at me like, Hey kid, you know, you're, you're my grandson's age, which I am for a lot of these folks. Um, we have real conversations. Yeah. I mean, the fact, uh, I, I feel like it has to be if, if the way they're forcing things through so quickly, you know, you'll say, I'm on my way to read this. And then, and then you'll have read it within an hour. I, I don't know that someone who's not a lawyer could get through something that dense that quickly. So that has to help you. Well, it's bad. And my side did this, but not all legislation gets shot through like that. Sure. Honestly, just the bad legislation gets shot through. And that's not a coincidence. They just want to reduce the number of hours that people can write about it and as daylight attached right. to it. Right. Kind of get it done. Right. So they want to shoot through the, the stuff that's going to be unpopular. But most of our legislation, like the vast majority, is painfully slow. 
and it's dragging through the committee process and then going back through the committee process. And there are all these amendments. And that's actually good. And if you're someone who does your homework and you're willing to have a good faith engagement, you can get a lot of good stuff done. Now, look, you're, the bill isn't going to have your name on it and you don't get to go to the press conference, but you drive home hearing the press conference knowing you wrote most of that. Right. Not for the accolades, right? Right. You can be a substantive participant, even in the minority party. And that's really rewarding. That's much more rewarding than getting quoted in the paper. Or something. Nice. Well, that's great. Well, again, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out. And uh, I definitely want to have you back because I got through about half the questions I had. Okay. So uh, I very much look forward to it. Thanks for taking the time out. My pleasure. All great right. Time. See you soon. What an episode. I am so grateful to Senator Jackson for taking some time out of his schedule to spend it with us. What an impactful episode. There were plenty of actionable nuggets of wisdom packed in this episode, but one in particular resonated with me, and that was Jeff's philosophy on learning something from everyone he meets, particularly those that he has conflicting viewpoints with. He said, I make a strict rule to learn something from what they're telling me. Everyone has something to teach me. That is powerful. And that simple rule alone, listener, has the power to change the level of discourse in the world. We need to listen to understand, not just to respond, to try to attempt to see the world through the lens of someone else's experience. Now, you ready to get out there and make the world a better place? Now, listener, if you enjoyed that episode with Senator Jackson as much as I did, you will have my undying gratitude and appreciation if you take a quick moment right now to hit that subscribe button. Seriously, right now. Stop what you're doing, unless you're driving. And hit that subscribe button on the show. Not only are you going to make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, you're going to get notified when sweet new episodes of the Future Self Podcast roll out. And do we ever have some sweet shows in store for you. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sitting down with local Charlotte legend Bob Peters of The Punch Room and Josh Stanton, one half of the power couple behind the wildly successful lifestyle brand Screw the 9 to 5. All right, before I let you go, one quick reminder about the comprehensive podcasting course at Advent Coworking from idea to iTunes. And you're going to get all that delicious podcasting goodness served up in person by yours truly. Whether you already have an idea or you need some help nailing one down, in just four short weeks, I'm going to help you take that idea and launch it on iTunes. So if you're ready to press play on your own podcast, head on over to yourpod.pro to sign up for details. That's yourpod.pro. All right, listeners, I know that your time is your most valuable asset. So I thank you once again for spending just a little bit of that time with me today. Now, until next week, get out there and get after it.